Part five of Works of Sallust. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Works of Gaius Salustius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Catiline Conspiracy, Part three. Among these women was a certain Sempronia, who had perpetuated many crimes, often worthy of a man's daring. She was well endowed with birth and beauty, and fortunate in her husband and children, was well read in Greek and Latin literature, could sing, play, and dance more gracefully than an honest woman need, and had many of the other accomplishments of a riotous life. There was nothing she held less dear than purity and honor. Indeed, it would be hard to determine if she were more careless of her wealth or her repute, so destitute was she of all modesty, that, more often than not, she was the first to begin an intrigue. Often, ere this, she had broken her engagements, forsworn her trust, and been an accomplice in murder, an extravagance which outran her resources had hurried her downwards. Her talents, however, were by no means despicable. She could write verses, bandy jests, and talk modestly, voluptuously, or pertly, at will. In short, she was a woman of much pleasantry and wit. Catiline, though he had made these preparations, was yet a candidate for the next year's consulship, hoping, should he be elected, easily to make a tool of Antonius. In the meantime, he was not inactive, but was using every method of intrigue against Cicero. The latter, however, had no lack of craft and adroitness for his own protection. At the very beginning of his consulship, by dint of great promises, he had, through Fulvia, prevailed on the Quintus Curius described above to betray him Catiline's designs. By an agreement about the provinces, he had constrained his colleague Antonius to desist from all disloyalty, while he secretly surrounded his own person with a bodyguard of friends and dependents. The day of election came, and Catiline failed alike in his candidature and in the secret attack he had planned against the consuls in the campus. He determined, therefore, to make open war and to go to every length, since his secret attempt had had so adverse and disgraceful an issue. Accordingly, he dispatched Gaius Manlius to Faisulae, and that part of Etruria, a certain Septimius of Camerinum to Picenum, Gaius Julius to Apulia, and to other quarters such persons as he thought would be in each place able to advance his ends. Meanwhile, at Rome, he was working at many plans at the same time, directing secret attacks on the consuls, making arrangements for a conflagration, and occupying suitable points with armed men. He himself went about armed and bade others to do the same, exhorting them always to be ready and on the watch. By day and by night he was active and wakeful, and neither sleeplessness nor toil could wear him out. When nothing came of all his activity, at dead of night he again summoned the chiefs of the conspiracy to meet, this time at the house of Marcus Porcius Lyca, and there, after many complaints of their cowardice, informed them that he had dispatched Manlius to head the force which he had collected for taking up arms, as well as other agents, to other favorable points to begin the war. He was anxious, he said, himself, 
to set out to the army if he could first work the destruction of Cicero, who was a great obstacle to his plans. While all the rest showed fear and hesitation, a Roman knight named Gaius Cornelius offered his help, and was joined by a senator named Lucius Varguntius. The two determined to proceed, a little later on in the same night, with an armed force to gain entrance to Cicero's house, as though to attend his levy, and then suddenly to take him unprepared and assassinate him in his own home. Curius, on hearing the greatness of the peril which threatened the consul, lost no time in acquainting Cicero, through Fulvia, with the plot laid against him. The assassins were turned away from the gate, and found they had planned their atrocious crime in vain. Meanwhile, in Etruria, Manlius was tampering with the populace, whose poverty, combined with their indignation at the wrong they had suffered in losing, under the tyranny of Sulla, their lands and all their property, now made them eager for revolution. With them were joined robbers of every description, who greatly abounded in those parts, besides some veterans from the Sullan colonies, whose lavish indulgence of their passions had left them with nothing out of all their immense booty. Cicero, when informed of this, was distracted by the double nature of his difficulty. On the one hand, he was unable any longer to protect the city from the conspirators' attack by such measures as he could take on his own authority. On the other, he had no certain information as to either the numbers or the designs of the army of Manlius. Under these circumstances, he laid the matter before the Senate, which had now for some time been disquieted by the reports prevalent in among the people. Following the course usual in dealing with any threatening emergency, the Senate made the decree, The consuls are to take measures to protect the state from harm. This is the greatest power which the Roman Constitution allows the Senate to confer on a magistrate. It authorizes him to raise an army, wage war, control in every possible way both citizens and allies, and exercise the highest military and judicial authority at home and in the field. Without this decree, the consul has no power in any of these matters except by command of the people. A few days afterwards, Lucius Sinius, a senator, read before the house a letter, which he said he had received from Faisulae. It contained the news that Gaius Manlius, with a large force, had taken up arms on October 23rd. As usual in such cases, some at once began to report signs and wonders, others to assert that meetings had been held and weapons conveyed, and that at Capua and Apulia slaves were rising. By a decree of the Senate, Quintius Marcus Rex was dispatched to Faisulae, and Quintus Metellus Creticus to Apulia and its neighborhood. Both these officers were waiting near the city, still retaining their commission as generals. The celebration of their triumphs had been obstructed by the underhand tactics of a clique, who were accustomed to set a price on everything, whether honorable or the reverse. Besides these two praetors, Quintus Pompeius Rufus and Quintus Metellus Keller were sent to Capua and Picenum, respectively, with powers to raise an army adequate to the needs of the time and the danger of the state. Rewards were also offered for any information as to the conspiracy against the state. These rewards were, in the case of a slave, his freedom and one hundred thousand sesterces, and for a free man, his pardon for any share he might have had in the plot, and double that sum. A decree was at the same time passed that the gladiatorial schools should be quartered on Capua, 
and the other borough towns according to their means, and that at Rome watches should be sent throughout the city under the charge of the minor magistrates. By these measures the state was violently excited, and the appearance of a capital quite changed. The life of unrestrained pleasure and indulgence begotten of a long period of peace was suddenly replaced by universal gloom. A state of feverish anxiety in ensued. No person or place was thoroughly trusted. There was neither open war nor secured peace, and each man measured the danger only by the terror in his own breast. The women, too, to whom the fear of war, now that the limits of the empire were so vast, had come as an unwanted feeling, were in great distress. They raised their hands in prayer to heaven, wept over their little children, were full of questions, and saw danger in everything. Throwing aside pride and frivolity, they despaired of themselves and their country. Despite these preparations for defense, the ruthless mind of Catiline was busy with all its former plans, and he was accused by Lucius Paulus under the Plautian law. At last, dither, by way of dissembling, or to clear himself should he be denounced, he attended the Senate. Thereupon the consul, Marcus Tullius, either from fear of his presence or in a burst of anger, did good service to his country by delivering a noble speech, which he afterwards wrote out and published. On resuming his seat, Catiline, following out his determination to dissemble everything, with downcast eyes and in tones of entreaty, began to beg the senators to form no hasty opinion of him. His birth and his conduct, from his youth up, justified him in cherishing the highest hopes. It would be wrong of them to imagine that he, a patrician born, whose own and whose ancestors' public services had been so numerous, could find it in his interest to destroy the state, while Morcus Tullius, a mere citizen at will, was engaged in his preservation. He was proceeding to further abuse, when a storm of shouts and cries of enemy and traitor interrupted him. Furious with rage, he exclaimed, Since I am beset and driven to destruction by my foes, I will quench in a general ruin the fire that surrounds me. With these words, he dashed out of the Senate house and hurried to his home. There his brain was soon busy. His treacherous attack on the consul was a failure, and he saw that the city was protected from incendiaries by the watches set. He thought it best, therefore, to increase his army, and to employ time before the legions could be levied in seizing the numerous positions that might be useful for the war. At the dead of night he set out with a few companions for the camp of Manlius, leaving instructions to Cethegus, Lentulus, and the others whose readiness and daring he had tested, to use every possible means of increasing the strength of their party, of pushing forward the plots against the consul, and of arranging for a massacre, a conflagration, and the other horrors of war. He promised shortly to march against the city in person with a large army. While these events were taking place at Rome, Gaius Manlius sent deputies from his force to Marcius Rex, with a message to this effect. We call gods and men to witness, General, that we have taken up arms with no design against our country, nor with any wish to bring others into danger. To ensure the safety of our own persons is our only motive, for, needy wretches as we are, the violence and cruelty of usurers has robbed most of us of our country, 
and all of fame and fortune. Not one of us was allowed, according to ancient custom, to avail himself of that law by which, on sacrificing his property, his person would have remained free. So pitiless were the usurers and the judge. Your ancestors often, in compassion for the commons of Rome, relieved their destitution by the decrees they proposed, and, quite recently, within our own recollection, owing to the prevalence of debt, bronze was raised for the purpose of repayment to the value of silver, and this with the approval of all honest men. Often, again, the commons themselves, roused either by a lust for power, or by the insolence of magistrates, took up arms and revolted from the senate. We, however, ask for neither rule nor riches, though these are the cause of every war and struggle among men. We ask only that freedom, which no brave man ever abandoned while life remained. We abjure you and the Senate to take measures to relieve us, your fellow citizens, to restore us to the protection of the law, wrested from us by judicial corruption, and not to force us to seek a course by which, while perishing ourselves, we may wreck the completest vengeance for our blood. Quintus Marcius replied, If you have anything to ask of the Senate, throw down your arms and go to Rome with your petition. Such has ever been the clemency and compassion of the Senate of the Roman people, that no one ever asked their help in vain. To return to Catiline, on his way to join Manlius, he sent letters to many men of consular rank, and besides these to all persons of any mark, informing them that, beset by false accusations, and unable to make head against the cabal of his enemies, he was resigning himself to fortune, and was now on his way to exile at Massilia. This course he was taking, not because his conscience reproached him with the crimes with which he was charged, but to secure the peace of the state, and to prevent any dispute about himself giving rise to sedition. To a very different effect was a letter read before the house by Quintus Catullus, which he had said had been delivered to him in Catiline's name. Of this letter the following is a copy. Lucius Catilina to Quintus Catullus. Your honor, at once so eminent and so practically proved, on which, amid my great dangers, it pleases me to think, encourages me to commit my affairs into your hands. I have determined, therefore, to enter on no defense as regards the fresh step I have taken, but have made up my mind, since I am conscious of no fault, to lay before you an explanation, of which I profess you can easily recognize the truth. Roused by the wrongs and insults I have endured, finding myself robbed of all reward for my toil and energy, and unable to gain any official position, I followed my usual bent, and undertook the championship of the wretched. This I did, not because my property was insufficient to discharge my personal debts. On the contrary, the generosity of Oristella was ready to pay off, from her own and her daughter's funds, those contracted as surety for others. No, it was the sight of unworthy men raised to the honors of office that impelled me, and the feeling that I myself was excluded on false suspicions. For these reasons I have embraced the hope, honorable in my present fortunes, of preserving what position I yet hold. I would write more, but news has just been brought that I am threatened with attack. 
For the present I commend Orestella to you, and entrust her to your honor. I implore you, as you love your own children, shield her from harm. Farewell. Catiline himself abode a few days with Gaius Flaminius at Eretium, and supplied the neighborhood, which he had previously aroused, with arms. He then assumed the fasces and other marks of a consular commission, and marched to the camp of Manlius. When this was known at Rome, the Senate pronounced Catiline and Manlius public enemies, and fixed the day up to which the rest of the conspirators, except those condemned on capital charges, would be held guiltless on throwing down their arms. A decree was also passed, ordering the consuls to hold a levy. Antonius was to put himself at the head of an army, and pursue Catiline with all haste, Cicero to remain to protect the capital. End of Catiline Conspiracy, Part 3